0: glad to have you here with us today. Uh, if you were given a, a card uh, with a little rose on that, at this time you should pass that to the inside aisles. I have some gentlemen here who would will be willing to uh, take that. Don't worry about that slideshow. Um, we sure do appreciate you being here, and uh, we're going to switch gears a little bit from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 And if you have your Bible open there, let me invite you to turn it to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 while we direct our thoughts toward the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul writes this book to a church that's struggling. Paul writes the book of 1 Corinthians to a a church that is at times influenced by the world. Isn't that interesting? Sounds a lot like the churches that that we are accustomed to even today, even the Lord's Church at times being taken away at times through uh, worldliness. And within that book, he addresses 16 major doctrinal problems that they're having. 16. There are only 16 chapters in that book. In chapter 1, he begins in verse number 10 and says, you're having a problem with division. We noticed this particular verse in our Wednesday night class with the young men, and I noted to them that that particular word would be more accurately translated denomination. You're having a problem that is splitting the church. You're having a problem that's tearing the church apart. And he goes through these particular problems that they're having them and, and, and begins to tell them how they can can repair those situations and fixed right toward the middle endish portion of that particular book, God chose to write chapter thirteen. You probably know chapter 13 very well just in its uh, mention of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, but I'd like for us today to study this particular chapter and see if we can glean some truths. So if you have your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, let's begin. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy, And understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave herself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. Love rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Love beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and endureth all things. Love never fails. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It's interesting to me that God, through the pen of Paul, decided to write about love in the three-chapter section of this book that deals with gifts of the Holy Spirit. This particular three-chapter group, three uh, chapter group, 12, 13, and 14, deals with this congregation who has these gifts given to them by an apostle, how they are to use them, and how they have been at times misusing them. And it's interesting to me when he writes that, that he writes first and foremost that their uh, motive behind all of these things should be love. He mentions that within the first three or four verses found within 1 Corinthians chapter 13. He says this, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though though I had the ability to speak every single language on earth. That'd be a great ability. Though I have the ability not only to speak every single language on earth, but to even speak to the angels in in their own language. Though I have the ability to speak tongues of men and of angels, and I don't have love. Love is not my motivating factor for others. Then I have become nothing more than a clanging cymbal. As I was growing up, my mother put up with a lot of things. And I say that to say this The first drum I ever touched I was in 5th grade And I still play And I can imagine Those first few weeks And months Were rough Have you heard somebody who's not Really good on an instrument Whether it be My girls took a violin class At Gadsden because the school made them it turns out they were not too bad at it. Did you ever hear in the first few days? You think, why are they torturing that cat? That's the idea of a clanging symbol. Here's a man who, who can do all of the spiritual gifts given to him by God, and yet he's not motivated by love, and he's just making a noise. He's just clanging. He's simply showing off for himself. Notice verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy. And so within two verses we've had the gift of tongues mentioned, the gift of prophecy, and understand all mysteries, the gift of knowledge. And though I have faith, the gift of faith, so that it could remove mountains. Though though I had everything that God would offer to the Christian during that day. And my motivation is not love. Notice what he says there in verse number 2. I, I am nothing. Though I had the gift of healing, and I could heal those who came to me, and I could teach them, and and my motivation not be loved, then what I'm doing is worthless, useless, pointless, Notice verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned, what if God required that of me to give everything that I had to the poor? You know that rich young ruler walked away very sad when Jesus said, sell all that you have and come and follow me? What if God required that of me? Would I be willing to give that? Would I be willing to give of even my own body to be burned? God said, "If even if I required that of you, and you did it without love, it's pointless. What is Paul trying to tell me through the inspiration of God? What, what is he trying to get me to understand within the first three verses? Brethren, our motivation in the Christian life must be love for, first, Christ, secondly, others. There are roughly 8 billion people in the world as we sit in this auditorium. Do I love them? Do I care that they're lost? Do I send some money sometime to some uh, missionary somewhere so he can make sure that they're not lost? Am I doing that to, to soothe my conscience or because I love those folks? See, when when we think about what hell is and what it's comprised of and how long that duration is and who all is going to be there, there should be a burning desire within me to not let anyone go there. That's the love God's speaking of. Is is it an urgency that I teach someone about the gospel or... That just happened to be Billy and Michael's job. Unfortunately, what you won't read about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is preachers go and do this. Make sure you cover the congregation. He writes this to a congregation who is struggling, fighting the world and keeping them out, and he says, your motivation is... It's just not right. The motivation in a Christian life must be. It can be no other thing other than love. It has to be there. And then he goes on from verse number 4 or verse number 3 and he describes the love that's supposed to be our motivation. You've probably read 4 through 8 100,000 times in your life. Let's read it one more time. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not itself. Charity vaunteth not itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own. Is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things. Believeth all things. Hopeth all things. Endureth all things. Now, now, As a a matter of of language, look at six verses six and seven. There is a a, a suffix on these words that is used in the King James that has been replaced by others, uh, other translations that that loses a lot of its emphasis when it changes. Notice this one in verse 6. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. If uh, you have a different translation, uh, it will probably say rejoices in, uh, rejoices in, not in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. The emphasis is missing when that ETH goes away. That ETH there, there holds a specific uh, reasoning for that word. It is in a continual state of, not just for a moment rejoices, but it continually lives in that state of rejoicing, not in iniquity, but continues to live in that state of rejoicing over truth. It continually lives in a state of bearing all things. It continually lives in a state of believing all things. It continually lives in a state of hoping all things. And it continually lives in a state of enduring all things. And it lives in that state where it never can fail. Sometimes we miss the emphasis of that word and those words because we've taken that away. What a a dynamic statement is being made about that motive of love do me a favor go back to verse four and if it is the fact then that christians should be motivated by love then i should be able to scratch out the word love or charity from the next four or five verses and insert my name in there and it be true Would it be true if I read it that Billy suffereth long and is kind? That Billy envieth not? That that Billy vaunteth not himself? He is not puffed up. He doth not behave himself unseemly. He seeketh not his own. He is not easily provoked. He thinketh no evil. Billy rejoiceth not in iniquity, but he rejoiceth in truth. Billy beareth all things. Billy believeth all things. Billy hopeth all things. Billy endureth all things. Billy will not fail. That's a hard question to ask. And here's the reason why it's a hard question to ask. Because I am then required to look at myself and say, do I meet the requirements of that list? And if I'm honest with myself, I will look at that list and at times say, no, I don't. I will look at myself and that list and say, I'm no better than the Corinthians. That's not the way I live at times. But shouldn't I? Isn't it required by God that I should live underneath that motive of love? And if that's required by God, shouldn't I then live by those specifications of love? I should. And if I'm being completely honest about it, I do much better today than I did yesterday. And if our God gives me another day on this earth, I'll do better tomorrow than I did today. I strive, and I hope all of you strive, but I strive to live my life in the same pattern that that sinless Lamb of God did. Isn't that what we're supposed to do? And if we are, isn't our motive love? Notice verse number 8. There's an important message going on in verse number 8 for us, the future church, given to that church in the past. And it is this. Those gifts that you have been given by God will be short-lived. If God let me choose. He said, all these eight gifts that are found within chapter 12, you can choose any one of them you want. Which would, which would you choose? I already know. I could cut my work week way in half, at least in the preparation aspect of it, if I had the gift of knowledge, if I just knew everything. That would be great. What gift would you want? You say, maybe I'd like the gift of, of healing. I could, I could shut down every hospital in, in uh, Hot Springs. Okay. Maybe I I had the gift of faith where I could show people that I could even move mountains with the faith that I have. Great! Those gifts that were given to mankind were not given in perpetuity. That is, they were not given forever. As a matter of fact, he will address this later on in this particular chapter and we'll look at it. And in verse 8 he says this, those prophecies that you're looking for and that that you're used to hearing, they'll go away. Those tongues that you're used to hearing and convincing people with that, it's going to go away. The knowledge, miraculous knowledge, it's going to go away. All of those things are going to vanish over time, but the one thing that will not vanish will be the motive of the church. He goes on to say in verse number 9 right here, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. The reason why he makes that statement is the time in which he lives. He lives in the time where the Bible, as you and I hold it, did not exist. He lives in the time in which it's being written. And he is living in that time in real time, right here as he's writing this book. And so he says, the things that we know in part, we prophesy in part, or all of it hasn't been revealed yet. Look at verse 10. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part will be done away with. In your lap. You hold the subject of that verse. Do you know why those gifts are gone? Do you know why the church does not have those gifts anymore? A couple of reasons. One, we don't have an apostle. Two, we don't need it. Would it convince you If someone were healed right before your eyes from blindness, would that convince you that Jesus is the Christ? Would it convince you more than the two times it's mentioned in in John? Well, if I could see someone raised from the dead, well, that was the same statement made by the rich man in torment. If you'll send him back to my brothers, they won't have to come here. What Jesus say? <laughs> They've got the scripture. Let them hear them. When that which is perfect, which you hold in your hand has come, there'll be no more need for the speaking in tongues, miraculous speaking in tongues. There'll be no more need for the miraculous knowledge. There'll be no more need for miraculous faith. There'll be no more need for those signs. Why? Because it will be written down And you can read those. And you can reread those. And you can study and you can analyze every single letter in those accounts. And you can know for a fact that Jesus is the Christ. And you can take that to Corinth. You can take that to Hot Springs. You can take that to Argentina or anywhere else you'd like to go. That which is perfect. And teach about the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. Where are we at? Acts cha- uh, Romans chapter... There we go. First Corinthians 13. He goes on in verse number 11 and says, When I was a child, I did things like a child. I spake like a child. I acted like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. He's comparing the, uh, the maturization process of a, of a boy to a man as the maturization process from not having the Bible into having the Bible. When when Paul became a man, he didn't deal with playing those childish games anymore. When you and I have the holy word of God, we don't need those signs anymore. He goes on to write this. For now we see through a glass darkly. We look through a window fogged up. He goes on to mention that there will be a time in which all of that fog will be removed. That that you can see uh, the, the beginning of Christ and the beginning mention of Christ in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 all the way to the point of his death and past that in Acts chapter 2 right before your eyes. Now I know in part, but then I shall be known, or know even as I am known. There's an interesting debate about that particular phrase. And sometimes when I read one side of it, I think, yeah, that, that could be right. And other times I read other sides of it, I think, well, maybe. And here's what I think about verse number 12. The latter portion of it. The Apostle Paul dies before the completion of the Bible that you hold in your lap. He never got to see what you saw. What you see every day. He never got to hold that. He never got to, to examine those scriptures in that fashion. Perhaps it is his holdout that when he makes it to heaven, all of those things that he did not get to see be revealed to him. He'll see how it was put together throughout history. He'll see how it it works together. He'll see how all of those things glorify God and the Son, Jesus Christ. So now he doesn't get to see those. But then he will. He will then. As he finishes this particular chapter, here's what he says. Now, abide at these three things. Faith, hope, and charity. The greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. The greatest of these is the motivation that the church would have. You know, there will be no faith in heaven. How many of you have ever seen Jesus? Alright. How many of you believe that... Well, let's not raise our hands. Let's, give me a shake or not. How many of you believe they lived? And died? And was resurrected? And, and ascended back to the Father? You'll no longer in heaven have to have faith as you stand looking at Him face to glorious face. How many of you hope for a home in heaven? Now let's qualify hope for a moment. Biblical hope is a desire with an expectation to receive. That is, if I follow after God, if I follow His commands the expectation is that he will give me what he has promised me. Anybody hope for a home in heaven? When you're there, you'll have no more hope. You'll be there. You can look around and see those things that John would try to describe as as streets that are paved with gold, as a, a city that sits on 12 different stones. You'll see those things. And perhaps... You'll even look John up and say, this is way better than you wrote. But There is one of those three that will endure through heaven. Now the greatest of these is love. There are two or three things that will cause a man or a woman to go to heaven. One of those is the love that God had For us in that while we were yet sinners, the Son was sent for us. That plan was already established according to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 3. Before even the very foundations of the world, God had a plan to redeem us. Why? Because God knows everything. And he knew that that serpent would speak to Eve. That Eve would falter. That Adam would follow behind her. And they would usher in sin. That's one of those loves that will get us to heaven. Another one of those loves is seen on the very cross, with his arms outstretched and, and his body bloodied and bruised. As he said in them, Father, forgive them. <laughs> they don't have any idea what they're doing. They don't realize they're killing the Messiah. They don't realize. Forgive them. That's one of those loves that will find us in heaven. That will save us. There's a third love that will will find us in heaven. And that love is the fact that I love God for the plan and Jesus the Christ for the sacrifice enough To make myself a slave for the rest of my life. When a church, when every member of the church is not motivated by love, the church isn't motivated correctly. First Corinthians. Are you today motivated by love? The, the gospel plan of salvation is first selfish, then it's selfless. It starts out by me looking at myself. Am I the one standing right before God? That is, have I heard what he had to say and and have I believed that? And if I believe that with everything that I have, have I repented of my sin, confessed that Jesus is the Christ, have I been baptized in water for the remission of my sins, being raised to walk in the newness of life? That gospel plan of salvation is first selfish. I have to look at myself. And when I have done those things and I have become a child of God, then it turns to being selfless. Then I look out and see the mass of humanity who have not. And then, motivated by love, I roll up my sleeves and get to work. Friend, have you put on Christ in baptism? If you haven't, you need to. And you need to do that today. Today, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is the day of salvation. Tomorrow may be too late. And if you've done those things and yet you haven't looked for and tried to teach and and work with someone else to save themselves, are you truly motivated by love? If you look at your life and you're motivated by something else other than what Jesus the Christ was motivated by, today is the day to come home. Let me give you one more scripture and the lesson will be yours. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. For those who have put on Christ, you're commanded by God through the inspiration of Scripture to let this mindset be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. If you look at your life and you're lacking, it's time to come home. If you've never been added to the family of God, today is the day. Right now, while we sing for your encouragement, Thank G-